the Pediatric Lounge, a podcast taking you behind the door of the Physician's Lounge to get a deeper insight into just what docs are talking about today. From the clinically profound to the wonderfully routine and everything in between. Well, hello again, and welcome to the Pediatric Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Herb Bravo, and joining me is Dr. George Rogo from Long Island, New York, our co-host. We have a phenomenal guest today, Dr. Colleen Kraft, who worked in primary care in an independent practice in Richmond, Virginia, then was the founding program director for the pediatric residency at Carilion Clinic, Virginia Tech, then went on to be the medical director of health networks at, by Cincinnati Children's, served as the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and is now at the faculty of the Keck School of Medicine and the University of Southern California, and currently is an attending physician at the Children's Hospital for Los Angeles. Before we get started with the show today, I just wanted to remind you about our CEO for Success Coaching Group, which has tremendous success, and we are still looking for six more applicants. We have also started a Substack channel under the Pediatric Lounge Pediatric Institute. Please make sure to subscribe. Good morning, George. It's Tuesday morning. It's time to welcome another great pediatrician to the show. Yeah, how you doing, Herb? Today we have Dr. Colleen Kraft. She's one of the greats that I've met. And her topic today is going to be aligning the community and the team for better outcomes in the pediatric community. So it should be a very interesting topic. We're going to be all over the place with this one. And we're also going to hear about her endeavors in a project that she was working in Romania with some children and developmental issues. And I can share some of my experiences when I went to school in Romania. And I actually saw those orphanages firsthand. Mm-hmm. Great. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kraft. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. So we start by asking every one of our guests who's a pediatrician, why did you become a pediatrician? I became a pediatrician because, quite honestly, I liked kids better than adults as patients. And I thought pediatric medicine had much more interest to it and much more potential to do good things for my patients, the people I took care of. Why did you choose academic medicine, a big system versus an independent practice? Ah, assumptions. I did not do that. Yes. So let me let me go through okay. what I did and what my career was like. So I actually spent most of my career in private practice. When I finished okay. residency in 1989, I joined Richmond Pediatric Associates, which was a practice in Richmond, Virginia. And I was in practice, private practice for 20 years. It was in 2009 that after I had been doing a lot of work in medical education within private practice, what do you do with building a curriculum for students and residents? How do you teach them the day-to-day operations of practice, the clinical medicine, and then the pediatric community? How do you have them spend time with school nurses and childcare centers and juvenile justices that... I was approached by the chair of the department at Virginia Tech Carilion, where they had just started a medical school. And she said, we need a pediatric residency and I can't get anyone to start one here. I can't get anyone to move down. I had been at Virginia Tech as an undergraduate. My father was still on faculty down there and I took the opportunity to go from private practice 
to starting a pediatric residency program at a new medical school. So oh, that's wow. how I got into that whole field. Wow, that's amazing. Did you attend at Henrico Doctors Hospital? I did, yes. I was we, at Henrico Doctors Hospital for 16 years. We must have crossed paths because I was part of their hospitalist program wow. back in 94 and 95. Oh, we would have, I would have been there then. So I was yeah. on staff at Henrico Doctors from 89 until 2016. So that was yeah. a great hospital. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting the politics between, is it St. Mary's? St. Mary's, yes, which is now H- part of the Bon Secours system. And then Henrico's Doctors, which is HCA. So, yeah. Yes, yes. How interesting. I'm sure we crossed paths, which is, I just don't remember. I used to round there. I used to round in the nursery. We used to go to C-sections there in the nursery. We used to, you know, admit kids to the hospital there. For a while, they had a PICU there. Yeah. You know, I, I knew the person who started the PICU. He actually is now working in India and starting PICUs and NICUs over there. So, so very uh, interesting interaction. Yeah. Yeah. I was there when they had the PICU and HCA stole the cardiovascular pediatric surgery from yes. MCV. Yes. And that was a huge lawsuit. He was mm-hmm. the nicest guy. Mm-hmm. Just a nice, super skill. I saw him through Bride Abulai. Yes. Because uh, he wasn't sure what it was. He's like, call the, call, call the hospitalist. They've seen a lot of more than this than I do. Mm-hmm. And I said, just debride it, send it on the lab, see what's in there. Mm-hmm. And oh my goodness. It, I mean, it was like watching an artist. His hands just moved, you know, in such a, beautiful way and i'm like oh god i would have cut the kid's arm off and he's great he was great i think he had to leave i think they lost the lawsuit he had to leave wow. towns wow it's interesting so what is health policy and how is that different on politics because a lot of time people get upset when you discuss health policy because i think politics bleeds into health policy all the time I think the best way to understand health policy is understanding the basic principles that underlie good health and good health care for everybody. So it's about accessibility, it's about finance, it's about what you include in the definition of health. And, and these are all things that you learn day to day in private practice. So you, you learn that if you've got a child who has Medicaid and they can't access a specialist, which, you know, back in the 90s, that was a big piece of it. The Medicaid groups would let you send, for example, a child with a congenital cardiac problem to an adult cardiologist, but they wouldn't let you send them to a pediatric cardiologist. That, that's a problem. So health policy underlies those principles that actually make for good health for different populations. Where that intersects with politics is really what you understand health to be. So if you, for example, feel that that healthcare is a business and any business should be able to run business the way that they want to, then that's going to interject some problems with health policy if you think about equity and if you think about accessibility. If prices are too high and nobody can access things like insulin or other medications, that's really a problem. If you think if your politics are, are one that thinks that everybody should have access to health care, then you, you may run into people who don't believe that they should just be able to pull up their bootstraps and pay for what they can pay for. You know, the politics will, will really play into health policy. So policy is the principle. Politics are really 
people's opinions and how that shapes policy. However, for example, in Medicaid, the politics always undermines the care and access for children, because in most states, Medicaid will not even reimburse at a similar rate than Medicare. And at Medicare rates, many physician practices are still losing money. That's absolutely true. And that is very much part of the problem, because when you look at even Medicaid funding, (coughs) 80% of the, the participants are kids. And they're really 20% of the funding. Most of the Medicaid funding goes to adult and long-term care services, where we advocate for what kids need. That is the policy and that we need the budget to match that policy. And we're not talking about the expensive folks, but we're talking about the kids who don't vote and don't give big pack contributions. And so we have to continue to be the voice for those kids. Yeah, and for- very, very interesting thing is uh, I was dealing with one of the Medicaid managed care plans, trying to establish a value-based contract for my organization. Mm-hmm. The guy came on the call with us. So we had three physicians on the call. You never have three physicians on a call, right? And a consultant. Right. And he said, do you know how much pediatrics is in the budget of medicine? It's this much, 3%. Mm-hmm. You guys are budget dust. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm going to humor you guys and see what you can do. You believe that? They don't care. Oh, no, they're they're upfront about that. And that is why so much of the experimentation that was done in accountable care organizations, particularly with regard to pediatrics, was really done because, you know, what can you do with budget dust? You can do a lot with that. Maybe we can play with these things here. And honestly, my run from independent practice to some of the larger groups of medicine and playing in this field was really to discover what it was that we could do and what was actually possible. And, and could we actually play in this space and do the right thing for kids and do the right thing for pediatricians? Well, so we know that whatever the politicians, and for those of you who don't live in Virginia, in Virginia, the politicians can receive any amount of donations from anyone. They can spend mm-hmm. the money however they want. It's not like the federal system that's capped at $2,500 per donation. They decide how much Medicaid pays. And I don't know what the statistic is for Virginia right now, but across the nations, 50% of the kids are insured. And I, I don't say insured. They're given a fake card that says they have insurance with the Medicaid from the state level. A lot of times they don't have access to some of the better pediatric practices in town because they can't afford to see them. And they can't access some of the better specialists because they won't see them. So that's one piece. What is health management? So health management and healthcare management is looking into the operations, the day-to-day operations of how you actually run a practice, where the budget and financing comes in, what, how many kids do you need to see in order to make ends meet? How do you evaluate an insurance contract to make sure this is something that's doable? It's part and parcel of what really should be taught to anybody going into medicine and and particularly in pediatrics. So So I was just fascinated. I, I have not seen this in any other residency program. You incorporated a health policy and management elective for all your residents down at Carillion. I did, and actually had a couple of residents do the same at Cincinnati Children's. And actually, in my current positions now at the Children's Hospital Los Angeles and on faculty at the University of Southern California, my role there is actually co-directing our resident advocacy track. 
where I have actually 57 residents in that tract, and many of them are interested in health policy and management. And, and how does that actually intersect with advocacy? Let me give you a good story from Virginia. So in 2006, I was president of the Virginia chapter of the AAP. And just as you were talking about, Medicaid rates for kids and for OB services were abysmal. And what was happening is that people were dropping Medicaid. They were not using it. Our Medicaid managed care plans had names on the rolls of physicians who were not open to new patients. And the, the practices that were open wound up having to cap to, you know, five to 10% of their practice being Medicaid because they couldn't afford to take any more of these kids. And so we talked a lot to legislators about doing this. We did this in a couple of really interesting ways. One of the ways that we did it was we're not a 501c3 for our chapter. So we were able to do some donations. And what we did was little bitty, $100, $200. I'm going to go to your pig roast road, you know, and give you $250. And we're going to have a member from your district come and talk to you about Medicaid and how they can't see the kids because of this. So we really infiltrated General Assembly that way, kind of a one-on-one. -on -one. Very Virginia way to do it. Very, you know, let's get to know you as my neighbor and let me tell you what the, what the problems are. And then what we did was we actually had practices help us out here where if they had a patient, a baby that they saw in the nursery who had Medicaid, they would see them one time in the practice and then tell them, you've got to find another doctor because we can't take any more kids with Medicaid. And then they would actually, if they wanted to, they would bring them around to the back office and find who their legislator was on CapWiz and dial the phone and give it to the parent who said, who's going to take care of my baby? So in state Excellent. legislatures, it's interesting to know that if you get five phone calls on one particular issue, that's a crisis. And we had practices all over the state with mothers calling their, their legislators and saying, nobody can take care of my baby. And that actually did wind up in an increase. It was small. It was 10% for OB and pediatric services. But it happened because of healthcare management, healthcare policy, which we knew had to improve, and then advocacy. So there's a very interesting link between those three things. Do you wow. think that these insurance companies, they actually know that they're not paying properly? Was it? So we're talking about two different things, George. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. at the time that Dr. Kraft's talking about, Almost all of Virginia Medicaid was medallion. I think it's yes, what, it was medallion at the medallion. time. They were just getting into Virginia Premier and some of the managed care organizations. And, and so, it was all fee for service run by Richmond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then came the managed care organizations in, in our part of the world, it's Anthem Healthkeepers Plus, right. uh, mm -hmm. Care Community. Uh, I think there is some Molina. Those are the big players here. Right. And so what George is really specifically asking is, in the old days, when Magellan Medicaid was there, you could look up the state schedule, fee schedule. And if for a 99213, they paid 70% of Medicare, that every, you know, Medicaid paid 70% of Medicare for a 99213. Mm -hmm. Now with the managed care, the state doesn't set the reimbursement rate. So you right. may have United Healthcare community paying 45% of Medicare and Anthem Healthkeepers paying 85% of Medicare. That's absolutely and, right. Mm -hmm. And George says, do you think the health plans are aware that they're doing that? Or, and why is the state not making it even for all of their managed care plans? So health plans are absolutely aware that they're doing that. And 
and and the state has given a contract. If there's enough complaints, the state will look into it. But but they've essentially said this this amount of money is going to go to you to manage, and you're going to be fiscally responsible for X number of people. And under those X number of people, there's going to be a double X number of children under there. So we're just handing it to you to manage. And, and, and that is why there's so much variability in some of the reimbursement rates in Medicaid managed care. You have to go to each one. And, and really, to your point, if there are three different United Healthcare plans that, are, that have Medicaid managed care money, then they may have three different rates for a 99213. So that's really part of the problem. This was actually my next job at Cincinnati Children's. This was actually what we were trying to intervene with there. So let me tell you a little bit about the health network at Cincinnati Children's. Let me pause for a second. Okay. Because I'm interested in something else and pick your brain about two other things. Okay. So now in Virginia, now that you are, you've left us, abandoned us, and gone on to the West Coast. I think we're at 75% of Medicare rates on the Medicaid reimbursement. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, for a wonderful work from Dr. Michael Martin, who is in Vienna and who's the, right. the, the AP chapter leader. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, we got a lot of help, interestingly enough, from our current governor okay. in passing that through. So mm-hmm. it was interesting. I love Karelian, but I'm a little bit skeptical about these oligo- oligopolies. And I know that Carillion way back, I think maybe even before you and I started practicing, got sued by the feds when they tried to muscle themselves into a radiology practice to have absolute control of all of the MRIs in Roanoke. Yeah, the feds won the lawsuit because, and I'm misquoting the numbers, but an MRI through Carillion and one of their outpatient offices was like $3,000 for the patient while the independent practice only charged $800. Uh, and anybody who was insured and had a high deductible would have their bill tripled. Anyone who was an insured, uninsured would have their bill tripled. And the feds want that. Also, it doesn't help us that in Virginia, this is very regional, but we have a crazy thing called certificate of need. So mm-hmm. there is no competition. We don't have our patient surgical centers which costs half of what a hospital surgical center costs and delivers better quality because they tend to be super specialized. They either do endoscopies or they they do cataract surgery or they do orthopedic care, but they do that six days a week and that's all they do. So they become extremely proficient at their job and very cost-effective. But the big hospital systems, and I'm going to call them out in Virginia, are Innova, MCV, Bonsecours, which is at UVA, mm-hmm. and Carillion. They mm-hmm. will not allow the legislators to change that. So what do you think about these huge systems that are wonderfully integrated, but they control everything and they can request or demand any amount of payment for any health plan without regard to the cost? So you're talking about the hospital industrial complex. And I think that it really undermines why healthcare has become so much more expensive and not particularly any better for people. That that you wind up paying more, but what do you get for that? What do you pay? What do you get for a hospital facility fee? Because that's actually moved out to even the outpatient areas. That if you work for one of these hospital industrial complexes, that there's going to be a facility fee. And and what does that do for you? 
it takes away any kind of transparency. It takes away a lot of affordability if you are somebody who has to pay out of pocket for things or if you have a high deductible health plan. So I think it's a big problem. You know, one of the things that I do talk to my residents about in 1989, when I was at Richmond Pediatrics, a visit was $28. You know, and I knew that. And if you saw a kid and they had, you know, a URI day one, and the next day they came in with a ruptured TM, you could see them and diagnose them and say, okay, I'm not going to charge you today because you were just here yesterday. You can't do that anymore. You know, if you try to get somebody to not pay a copayment, that's against the law. And there's no transparency. I can't tell you what it cost me to see my patient a couple of nights ago. You know, it's far from the days that we knew what our costs were. And we have to get back to that because that's the only way that we're going to make medicine less expensive and more effective for patients. So to your point, the facility fee is almost as bad as balanced billing by the big venture capital and private equity, you know, physician practices. Because the patient has no idea that Mm -hmm. they're going to get a facility fee. Mm -hmm. And that facility fee can be whatever the hospital and the health plan agree to. And if you have a high deductible, and I get in trouble all this time, but I think of people with high deductible insurance, insurance, like me, they're a dual income couple working at a white collar job really hard, you Mm -hmm. know, 60 hours a week, and they got to pay the first $5,000 out of pocket. Right. And that visit that they thought was going to be a couple hundred dollars turns into a $500 and it messes up their whole budget for the month. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's criminal or they go to the emergency room and they get these respiratory panels that are $1,200. Yes. So now, the visit is $2,500, $1,200 for the test and $1,200 for the visit. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break here and we will be back with episode two and then three with Dr. Colleen Kraft. Don't forget to subscribe on our Substack channel and join our coaching group for CEO success. See you next week. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Pediatric Lounge. On the show notes, you will find links to our co-host and other important notes as well as a timetable of the topics discussed today. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a great review as it helps us greatly. In the meantime, we will see you next week. The Pediatric Lounge. The conversations are not intended as medical advice and the opinions expressed are solely those of the host and the guest. <laughs>